Hi there, it's Elizabeth. Are you feeling burned out and maybe in need of a change? As a leader or an organizer, you may be facing high levels of stress, pressure, and uncertainty at this moment, particularly in a post-lockdown world. You may also be feeling overwhelmed and disconnected from your passion and your purpose. Introducing, drumroll please, Reinvention 2023, Leadership and Life. This is our new program here at the Gaia Leadership Project that's designed to help leaders like you combat burnout and achieve greater success in your professional and your personal life. Through a combination of online training, coaching, and group support, you'll learn the latest leadership strategies and techniques while also exploring your own personal values and goals. You will gain skills and confidence to lead with purpose and impact both in your organization and out in your community. Our program also includes dedicated sessions to help you manage stress and burnout, including mindfulness and self-care practices, strategies for maintaining work-life balance, and techniques for setting boundaries, one of my favorite issues, and prioritizing self-care. Don't miss out on this opportunity to reinvest in yourself and your future. Sign up for Reinvention 2023 today, and you can start your journey to becoming a more effective, fulfilled, and resilient leader. Learn all about this new six-week program that starts on February 6th by going to GaiaLeadershipProject.com slash Reinvention-2023. That is GaiaLeadershipProject.com slash Reinvention-2023. Thanks. Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Welcome back to Living Through It. I'm your host, ECM, as you know. I am so excited this week that we are welcoming to the podcast Roger Lau, the Deputy Executive Director of the DNC. This interview blew my mind. I'm just going to be really honest about it. I feel as though the story that Roger has to tell, which I know you're all going to find so inspiring and interesting and so very, very much a tale of what's possible in America, uh, to be exactly the medicine that you need for today. And I think that um, with so much around us that seems to be swirling in chaos and uncertainty, I left this interview feeling um, hopeful about where we're headed and about where the party is headed. And I hope you feel the same. So without further ado, please welcome Roger Lau. Okay, and welcome back to Living Through It. I am so thrilled to welcome today to the podcast Roger Lau, who is the Deputy Executive Director of the DNC. Um, Roger has a fascinating path that led him to politics, and um, and we came to know each other through the Elizabeth Warren's campaign for presidency, and um, I'm just very excited to have you here. So welcome, Roger. Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me, and uh, great to see you actually in person, oh, at least virtually. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. After after a number of phone calls, it's great to finally meet this way. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm really curious. You have such an interesting background. Uh, first generation child of immigrants from China. Um, really interesting trajectory through New York City and your upbringing that led you to politics. And, um, and it's such an American story. It struck me when I was kind of like looking back at how you landed where you are. So I was wondering if we could talk about that for a minute and how how um, your upbringing and your trajectory led you here. Yeah, Elizabeth, thank, thank you for saying that. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk a little bit about it. And, you know, I think that the way you framed it as such an American story is exactly right. Uh, the, the funny thing is, when I was younger, it didn't feel so American. It didn't feel so, quote unquote, normal. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, that's what drives me to do what I do today. But, you know, to... to Get back to I think you you, you talked on touched on this thing a little bit, but yeah, you know, my my both my parents you know were born and raised in Guangzhou, China. Um, both of them fled China uh, to find a better life and opportunity for them, and you know maybe their potential future kids uh, when they're both um, in their late teens and fled to Hong Kong and, and decided you know after they met that they wanted to go to the United States, you know to you know build a better future for them and hopefully again you know give their future kids an opportunity. Now and opportunities that they never had themselves, and you know it, it took a lot. You know, it, you know, not often. You know, when I think of myself as a an American, as a kid who grew up here, the idea of traveling halfway around the planet, you know, to a place where I didn't know anybody, I don't know if I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak the language. Um, it, it takes so much courage, and it takes you know so much uh, ingenuity and and commitment. You know, to, to be able to commitment and, and trust in yourself to be able to do that kind of thing. But they came to to New York, uh, where I was born, and raised. You know, my parents said, uh, as my mom often says, you know, three sons, two good ones, one bad one. I was a bad one. Uh, <laughs> I was the one that, um, you know, wound up getting a little wayward in my path. Both my parents worked two jobs. You know, they left the house at seven a.m. and would get home. You know, sometimes then, you know, as late as eleven o'clock at night, working, you know, two jobs apiece, working seven days a week to make things work. Uh, you know, we had clothes on our back, good food. And you were able to go to some of the best public schools in New York City. Uh, when I say I was bad, you know, I was the one who made the brilliant decision uh, when I was probably 13 or 14 years old, you know, to not go to school anymore. And, you know, there's a lot in between there. But, you know, basically I did things that I wasn't proud of. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, but the biggest part of it is looking back was, you know, I just wasted time and I, I squandered an incredible opportunity my parents gave, you know, to me and my brothers. Uh, by making the sacrifice and coming to this country. And the best way I could think of to make sure that I didn't waste, completely waste that opportunity was through education. You know, so when I was 19 years old, I wound up taking my GED. And so those who don't know, it's a high school equivalency exam where you get a high school diploma if you pass a test. Uh, I passed, uh, luckily. And, you know, wanted up taking my SATs and, you know, decided that, you know, college was going to be the next step if I can get into college. And, you know, I knew myself at the time. I knew... Uh, the, the, the sort of, um, you know, just the, the, the place I was in life. And I knew that the only way I would have a chance to succeed was to get a, as far away from, um, you know, my surroundings, my neighborhood, uh, maybe some of the people around me, um, get as far away from that so I can focus on what I needed to do. And, you know, this is not anyone's fault. This is more, you know, my lack of self-discipline at the time. So the funnest place I could think of, you know, at 19 years old was, Western Massachusetts, yeah, all of 120 miles away. 
Uh, it turns out that when you're you're not relying on a subway pass, you know, uh, anymore, you know, and you have a car, you can drive. Um, you know, the world is your oyster. But yeah, nonetheless, Western Massachusetts is where I wound up. I wanted to go to university in Massachusetts, and you know, really, it was that, around that time that I I figured out, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? What do, how do I want to you know spend my life? You know, I, I knew I didn't want to do what I did anymore. I didn't. I knew I didn't want to spend my days, you know, getting in trouble anymore. And the more I thought about, you know what you described in this American story um, with my parents coming to America, you know, trying to find a second chance with my, my grandparents, you know, coming here to join us and, you know, a whole generation of people from my, both my parents' families, you know, coming here to build lives and, you know, kids like me who, you know, maybe didn't deserve a second chance, but would make the most of it if we had one. Um, that to me should be the American story. And, you know, when I was thinking about how I can help families like mine, neighbors like mine, and kids like me, you know, government and politics seem to be, you know, probably the the most the best way to do do it in sort of mass scale. And the Democratic Party specifically, you know, seemed to be the party that you know stood for a lot of those things. So that's sort of how you know I grew up. That's sort of how uh, I think about the world um, to make you know our story the American story and not just American story that you hear every now and then, you know, as inspirational, but you know, these are, they're real families like mine that come in every single day. They're real kids like me who screw up and, you know, we need to make it possible for people to have that success and reach those dreams. And I think that the party does it. And, you know, that's, that's sort of lens. I look at the work every single day when I'm here at the DNC or working with Elizabeth Warren or anywhere else where I'm in politics. Yeah, it's such a great story. And, you know, it's funny because I, I'm, I'm always struck when I talk to people who, um, who trace their, their lineage through kind of immigrant stories like this, how much we all have in common. You know, my, my great grandmother came over on a boat from Poland when she was 14 years old, came through Ellis Island. Wow. Yeah, never saw her family again. Started out as a cleaning person in Philadelphia, uh, lived with her uncle. Like I've tracked a whole bunch of this back now. And, you know, it's amazing how, um, how so many things can change in the space of a generation, right? Like, you know, my, my mom was the first person in, on our side of the family to go to college. I was the first person on that side of the family to go to graduate school, um, let alone to become a lawyer. And, you know, it's, it's wild looking back. I can't imagine. And just as you said, you know, what it must have been like for your parents as teenagers to make these incredible choices and, to do it with so much risk and so much self-trust. I, I think about my great grandmother all the time. I used to go sit when I was really depressed and living in New York, I used to go sit down by, um, Battery Park and look at the Statue of Liberty and think about my own wow. grandmother, my great grandmother coming in on the boat to Ellis Island, which I could see from right there. Right. And, um, and how we become kind of like the manifestation of those dreams, right? It's um, it's so it's so interesting, and you know, I think it's it, it's also fascinating to just think about it through the lens of immigration, right? Because one of the things I find so upsetting about where we are right now is the idea that um, that you know, people who are coming here across the southern border seeking a better life or fleeing violence don't deserve the same chances that our families had, right? Yeah, I mean that that's the American dream too, right? It it, it looks a little bit different, right? Uh, it's not Ellis Island, um, but you know, nonetheless, you know, the people are coming here for the exact same reasons for decades and centuries. Um, it's funny when I think when you talk about your grandmother, I imagine this fourteen-year-old young woman, you know, but really a child, getting on a, a ship, 
not speaking the language coming to the country. I, at 19 years old, drove from New York City to Amherst, Massachusetts, thought I was being adventurous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> That's hilarious. Different times. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny how our perspectives change. Okay, well, so you you started out, your first campaign was a Kerry campaign. My first campaign was a Dukakis campaign. And actually, I started as a summer student at Harvard when I was in high school. Um, tell tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the Kerry campaign and what that taught you and what you learned about politics by doing that as a student. Yeah, no, so um, uh, it was an incredible, such a such a unique experience, you know, and, and one that I did not think was accessible to me at the time. But you know, taking a step back, I, I, as I mentioned, I was at UMass and decided to be a political science major. Uh, if I'm being honest, you know, part of it was I was interested in politics, interested in this idea of mass change. Um, but the other part of it was I, I remember, you know, Elizabeth, you know, I think most people, who, especially those who do well in school, you know, just don't think of it in these terms. But learning is, it, it, it's a skill. You know, it's a muscle that you develop. And just like any other muscle, it can atrophy. And, you know, for me, you know, leaving school when I was 13 or 14 and not going back to school until I was 19, I was completely out of my depth. You know, I remember, you know, this big idea of like going to school means going to class and going to class is learning. And it's, as you know, you know, and as everyone knows, it's not as simple as that. So, you know, when I first got to UMass, it took me some time to relearn how to be a student. Uh, and in many ways, probably learned for the first time, you know, uh, how to, how to study uh, and how to read thoughtfully and critically and, and retain and, and, you know, um, just sort of re-examining everything that, that I'm reading and learning over the course of time. So I took a bunch of classes. I went up trying different things. I tried biology. I tried psychology. Uh, psychology didn't stick. I, I wound up being, you know, a little bit of a hypochondriac, you know, uh, yeah, diagnosing myself with different things. And, you know, I, I remember, but I remember taking my first political science class and just feeling totally different going to class, raising my hand and participating in group discussions, the readings. And by the end of it, I, I remember I got my, you know, report card, uh, the, you know, the grades at the end of the semester. And I was so proud of myself. It was the first time that I could remember ever in my life getting an A in class. And I thought two things. First of all, I was like, I must be really good at this stuff. I'm going to do politics. Uh, the second part of it was it, this realization that you know, this is how I learn. When I find something I'm interested in, when I find something I'm passionate about, I'm going to approach it differently. And I was just completely enraptured and um, completely consumed by, you know, knowing more, learning more, and then, you know, through politics, you know, doing more. So I wound up interning for then-Senator John Kerry in his Springfield office. You know, I, someone who answered the phones, I wrote notes, you know, on behalf of the senator, like, you know, birthday notes, anniversary notes. Eagle Scout notes and things like that. Uh, I took phone calls from constituents who needed help. And this idea that a kid like me who didn't come from a family that was well-connected, who didn't have the best academic record, who had a criminal record, um, would have the chance to represent, you know, a prominent United States senator to help families like mine and kids like me get connected with services or even just acknowledging them, you know, by sending them a note, you know, that's signed by the senator. It, it just felt like such an honor. It felt like such a privilege. And it felt like just something that just wasn't real because, like, kids like me don't get shots like that. So I want up uh, at the end of it, you know, uh, being offered an opportunity to work as a constituent caseworker in his Boston office in the Senate. Uh, 
and I was over the moon. I already felt like at that point I achieved you know, everything I could possibly hope to, to, to achieve and do in government. And obviously, you know, at that time, you know, John Kerry was on the rise and, you know, we went through a re-election campaign where I learned uh, the basics and fundamentals of organizing and knocking on doors, you know, talking to voters, uh, making phone calls, you know, to, to ask for support. Um, and, you know, a short year later, back in, in 2003, you know, the, uh, John Kerry launched his presidential campaign. Uh, I was just so, so, so lucky just to sort of land in the right place at the right time. You know, having a sort of ground floor, front row seat, you know, to a presidential campaign like his. And, you know, the rest of sort of history, you remember, you know, it was a campaign that started off big, you know, where got, I got to learn a lot of things, you know, working a national campaign at grand scale to a campaign that, you know, was pulling forth at fifth uh, come September of 2003, you know, where everyone thought we were getting the water. And I learned a lot from that, too. I learned, you know, the, uh, how to sort of a campaign when things get tougher. I learned how to you know, stay positive and believe when no one else does. And, you know, I learned that, you know, um, you can do a lot, very little, so long as you know what you're focused on and what your objectives are. You know, needless to say, you know, we uh, wound up, you know, surging back and winning in Iowa and Hampshire. And I was so lucky to be on the road for so much of that and on the ground in a lot of these early caucus and primary states. And obviously things didn't work out in the general election. Uh, but I will always, always, always remember that experience, uh, the opportunity that John Kerry gave uh, me as a young kid that maybe didn't fit the profile of, you know, uh, people who work in campaigns like that, especially at that time. Um, but also, Elizabeth, it was like the first time in my life that uh, I got to see the country. You know, I was the kind of kid that barely left New York and reminded me of my neighborhood. Uh, I never wanted to. And, you know, just being able to travel around, meet people from different walks of life in different parts of the country, just having a different perspective on not only how different the rest of this country is, but also how similar people are in terms of what they're hoping for, what their aspirations are for their family, and what they can expect from government. Um, it was a wild, wild experience, and I'm so grateful for that. And, and to this day, uh, I, I still talk to John Kerry from time to time. I still talk to a lot of my former colleagues, mentors, you know, who um, I, 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 I can't believe you know, that through those experiences, you know, almost 20 years later, here I am doing... I'm still doing what I get, get to do and still loving yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fantastic story. And, you know, I, I remember I was working in New York with, uh, at a law firm that was very progressive um, where we actually met, we had fundraisers for Carrie. And I, I can remember being like in a nightclub in like the West Village of New York City with John Kerry on stage like a month before the election. Oh, wow. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, in the VIP room, you know, because the people in my law firm were all like really serious Democrats and donors and, and the like. And, um, and just how wrecked we all were at the end of that election. And um, and it's funny, though, because I look back on it now and in some sense, you know, that that election to me, um, the loss of it was a reminder of how we keep going, even when things are kind of not haven't turned our direction. I sort of feel like even with the devastation of the election of Trump in 2016, the John Kerry's loss, <laughs> you know, albeit 12 years before, sort of prepared me for that in ways I think that um, that were that were helpful um, because it was kind of the reminder that you have to keep pushing even when things that are that are difficult or devastating or hard happen sometimes in democracies, right? Um, so, you know, that that brings me to how you ended up as the campaign chair for Elizabeth Warren, because I know you worked with Elizabeth for a very long time. And, um, and you know, I, uh, I shared with you in advance of this that uh, when she dropped out 
I, I was broken. Like, I don't think my kids are ever going to forget it. Cause I was like driving them to school the morning that she announced that she was pulling out sobbing in the wow. car <laughs> with my children in the backseat going like, wow. Mom, why are you so upset? And you know, I had so much hope and I still do. I mean, I feel like that campaign, her campaign, um, changed so much, uh, you know, in part because of, and it, it relates to one of the things you said about the Kerry campaign, right? Is that you get surrounded by people. Um, and this is how I felt doing, you know, the volunteer work that I did for the Warren campaign and the people that I met and black women for, and all these incredible black women organizers that I came to know just the way in which it became, um, it became like a unifying force for these great progressive minds and great progressive people. And some of these people are like, newfound friends, hopefully lifelong friends. But, you know, what you did there was something not only historic, but also, I mean, I, I don't want to be too melodramatic about it, but it was like kind of miraculous for a lot of us, I think, no. in, in the Trump era to have <laughs> to be suddenly surrounded by these incredible like-minded people, all of whom were aiming for the same goal behind a candidate that we all believed in so much. Um, so I have to say thank you for that. But I want to I want to know what it was like for you. Thank you. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. Uh, so I wound up working for Elizabeth Warren uh, back in the late 2011. The reason why I wound up working for her was over the course of, you know, the time when I was working for John Kerry. You know, I was a kid that, again, was just excited to be there, grateful to be there. And, yeah, I was I, I, I was under never under any illusions that I was the smartest person there or the most valuable person there. So my value was always being, the, you know, was the, the kid that would just raise his hand for whatever needed to be done, whether it be you know, an extra phone shift, um, you know, uh, picking the center up in the early in the morning or dropping him off the airport late at night, uh, picking up his favorite cookies over at Faneuil Hall. I, I don't know if you remember this, but Giant Perry used to I do. Uh, own a uh, chocolate chip cookie store. Yeah. And, you know, he still wanted uh, cookies from the same place. And, you know, even years, years later when he was a senator. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I often raised my hand for was helping out on campaigns, whether it was his or others when he endorsed. And, you know, through the course of that, I got to work on presidential campaigns, restaurant races, and center races, and city council races for, you know, my you know, amazing, you know, colleagues and future superstars like Ayanna Presley, who's now, you know, just so, so proud of her, you know, as uh, one of our most powerful voices in Congress, along with Deb Holland. We're very lucky. Um, so, yeah, no, the last campaign John Terry, you know, sort of uh, detailed me out to was for Elizabeth Warren. You know, I remember him calling me and saying, Hey, Raj, you know, I, I want you to go work for uh, Senate race. I'm like, which, which one are you thinking working on? And he's like, the one in Massachusetts against Scott Brown. I was like, oh, who's, who's running? What do you think? And he said, Elizabeth Warren. And then I was like, oh, boy. I was like, I think it's going to be tough, Senator. And he's like, well, why do you say it's going to be tough? I said, well, she's a Harvard Law School professor from Oklahoma. And all she does is talk about banking. I was like, Senator, nobody cares about banking. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, tells you my political acumen. Um, but, you know. There's a little, you know, back and forth. Ultimately, of course, I did what John Kerry asked me to do. And I wound up showing up, you know, uh, on day one, working with Elizabeth and on the road with her. And I just fell in love. You know, I remember, you know, meeting her and thinking, you know, she's kind of an unconventional candidate, especially in Massachusetts, you know, where it's very parochial. Uh, you know, you have to serve you the city council thing, maybe run for state rep, you know, you know, higher up office. And then maybe one day you'll get to, you know, uh, be a congressman or something like that. And yeah, here she was, someone, you know, as I said, who had no political background, uh, who wasn't from Massachusetts, who, you know, decided to get out there and, you know, running a platform about the economy. And at that point, it was sure people cared about the economy, but it wasn't quite in the way that, you know, I thought that uh, the way she talked about it. 
And I remember spending that first day with her, and I remember learning a few things. That one, uh, she was obviously just brilliant. Um, it was clear something I knew coming in, but watching her interaction, I mean, I've worked with a lot of really, really smart people, but boy, there's just something about her just, uh, just like clicks on, on everything, you know, whether it be people or ideas or connecting dots, uh, it happens almost instantaneously. You know, two is that, you know, she had that little Oklahoma accent and, you know, she had a little bit of a mom vibe to her where it was kind of, you know, goofy, but there was something about it that I think people just really were drawn to. Uh, there was an authenticity that I think was there that uh, people felt like, you know, it's just that sort of common touch that I think uh, uh, she has, you know, along with just uh, charisma and a sense of humor. And then the third thing I learned was that it turned out that the people actually did care about banking. I remember, you know, on that first day, going to an event, you know, fundraising breakfast back when we used to do fundraisers, and then the Chamber of Commerce luncheon, and then a union meeting, and then going to Roxbury and to make a plane to meet with the Black and Latino communities. And everywhere she went, she talked about banking. She Everywhere she went, she talked about the hold that Wall Street has, you know, over our economy and the impact it has on our lives. And she talked about it almost exactly in the same way everywhere she went. And as she was talking with these different groups, you know, you could see as she was explaining the issues and what was the stake, the items just light up. The thing would just click in people's heads. And without fail, I mean, people walked in sort of like, you know, sort of interested, curious about, you know, meeting this, this law professor who decided to run against the most popular senator in the country to feeling like she just explained to them an existential problem for this country, how it impacted their families and potentially a path forward. And that's when I was like, wow, I want to work for her. I want to help bring the change that once she, she's gone, once she brings to the country. And, you know, it was fascinating to me because it was also the first time, Elizabeth, that, that I, I started thinking, we need more teachers in public office and politics, right? You know, I always thought lawyers were the best, made the best politicians and public servants because, one, they understand the law, and two, they could be persuasive, right? But it turns out that, you know, having someone that can take things that are by design complicated, by design difficult to understand. And when I say by design, as Elizabeth often says, you know, designed by a bunch of like, army of lawyers and lobbyists, and helping them explain it, again, what it is, why it's important, and how we can make a change was so powerful. So uh, I fell in love on day one, needless to say. I wound up being her political director for the rest of that campaign cycle. We won. Uh, turned out I was wrong about that as well. <laughs> And I wound up working for her in the, in the Senate as her state director in Boston, now official office for five years. And in 2018, she tapped me to run her re-election campaign in Massachusetts, where, you know, frankly, we learned a lot. We tried a lot of new things. Um, I can say this now, knowing that, you know, it may be possible that she might want to run for higher office at some point and run a bigger campaign. And in 2020, as, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to be her campaign manager. Uh, along with Fat Shakira, uh, who was Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, the, among the, the first two Asian Americans to run the presidential campaign. And it was such, and I learned so much, and you know, lessons that I continue to take with me uh, at a DNC uh, here every single day. Uh, and the community that we built, uh, as you said, the friendship, it, you know, I, I think of campaigns, yes, it's a, a, an opportunity and an avenue that we use to make change. Uh, in this country, but it's it's also a dialogue that you know if someone has an opportunity to have to share new ideas, to listen to people, and it, that moment in time that we had, where a, 
I often think about Elizabeth going around the country teaching people about economics, about infrastructure, about you know, organizational change, about national change. Uh, it was just so special, and it was you know, sort of uh, you know amazing to watch the consummate teacher, you know, the ultimate platform teaching and watching a country whether whether they agreed or not with her or not learning. And it was really cool. I mean, to see the people who are part of it, um, people like you, you know, who believed, who who wanted to 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 sort of learn it and teach others as well. Um, it was really special. And you know, one of the hallmarks I think of the campaign, you know, both internally as an organization, but I think you know, externally uh, for the campaign itself, there are very, very, very few people who signed on. You know, we, if, uh, Elizabeth, you remember we actually announced that she was running on. December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2018. Yep. You know, we were on the first movers. And at that time, nobody, nobody thought she could win. And I mean, I, I, I believe one of that, that the vast majority of people, even those who decided to join the team as staff, you know, um, become investors and, and, and chip in, you know, to, to help, you know, uh, you know, finance the campaign, to volunteer. Very, very few people who got involved early on thought we had a prayer of winning at all. But it was this idea that, you know, ideas mattered. And people mattered, and a campaign that was focused on, you know, and centered on people and ideas, and was uh, was what they wanted to be part of. And it changed forever, changed the way I, uh, that I thought, you know, how that campaign could be run. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing to hear you talk about it because one of the things that I just so loved about it, and you know, I, maybe this is just the nature of Elizabeth Warren herself, but it never felt like her leadership was. Uh, had to be dumbed down for anybody, right? Like she met everybody where they are, right? And was like, this is, it's sort of almost the way in which um, you kind of sink your stand into a position and you bring people with you, right? You know, one of the things we had a non-Dero Dardis on the podcast not all that long ago, and he kind of talked, his book, The Persuaders, talks Mm. about the ways in which a progressive agenda can be uh, can be persuasive and how we can persuade as advocates and organizers and activists. And um, one of the things that he talked about is the way in which we don't seed the ground, but we bring people with us. We persuade those in the world who maybe aren't familiar with us or don't understand why an issue matters or why a cause matters why their own lives are impacted by that particular election, cause, issue, piece of legislation. And one of the things that was just so brilliant to me about watching that entire campaign was that she she just can talk to people in ways that really understand and hear what the issues are really about for them, but simultaneously without, um, without, without creating any form of elitism in it. It's just a really incredible political skill on her part, um, that I think a lot of us can learn from, right? That we don't, I, I think there's, there's so much out there right now, um, that kind of diminishes you know, the smarts, quote unquote, of, for instance, working people. Like we see the far right kind of playing to sort of what, you know, base ideas, racist ideas, xenophobic ideas. When the reality is that, you know, one of the things that was so great about the Warren campaign was that it, it to me anyway, it made so clear uh, in, in the way in which she operates as a politician and in the messaging of the campaign that we're all in it together, right? <laughs> that like all the issues that we're facing 
are ones that impact all of us and that, you know, divided we fall, you know, it's a, not to quote, you know, a kind of usual idiom, but it's true. It's like, you know, everybody wants their kids to have a good education. Everybody wants to have affordable health care. Everybody wants That's to right. make sure that they can, right. they can put food on the table and that their money is not being stolen by Wall Street or, you know, huge corporations and oligarchs and the like. So I just, you know, I have to say that I feel like your, your leadership in the campaign and the messaging of the campaign really set a new standard for what campaigns can look like. Um, and I'm hopeful also, even, even in light of that outcome, and I said this to people at the time and, you know, curious if, if you felt the same way, but one of the things that I said was that I feel like the Warren campaign, just by what it did achieve, managed to move the needle for the party in a direction that created a whole new realm of possibility in terms of what campaigning could look like. Um, so that, that, that was my two cents on it. I feel like her impact is historic and always will be, that that campaign was historic and always will be. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I think she's really proud of that. You know, when we first started thinking about running for president, when she first started talking about it and we thought, first started talking about how we wanted, wanted to run the campaign, you know, it was, you talk about moving the needle of the party. You know, part of these things, whether it be, Canceling student loan debt, you know, making you know universal childcare available, um, a wealth tax, making sure that people are paying their fair share, you know, this idea that you know all families, you know, uh, across the border, across the country, uh, in every household, in every single demographic, care about these fundamental things, you know, the, the security of our, ourselves and opportunities, security and opportunity for our kids, and you know, protecting the planet. These are all things that people can relate to and understand, and you know. Anytime you're running for president, you're thinking about, you know, you're talking about, you know, I don't know, I mean, 10% chance of winning, 15% chance of winning. I don't know. Especially if you're talking about a historically large field with over 20 candidates, you know, multiple senators, you know, former vice president, uh, several incredibly, incredibly talented uh, women candidates, people of color, you know, uh, Asian Americans, Latinos, African Americans. I mean, it was a really, really special field of candidates. So we knew that the competition was going to be stiff. We knew it was going to be a challenge. And if we're going to spend a year, year and a half, if you're lucky, two years embarking on this, 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 this odyssey, this journey, you know, how do you want to spend it? How do we want to spend it? How does she want to spend it? And, you know, the idea of running a campaign the way that you're supposed to run it, you know, where coming out of Boston, you know, you do a fundraiser in Boston and then you go to a BC, New York and do a fundraiser there in DC and you sort of like trace around the map going south down to Miami and then Texas, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, maybe stop in Iowa along the way. Every stop, you know, uh, prioritizing fundraising, it just wasn't the way she wanted to run the campaign. I mean, if she was going to run, the reason why she wanted to run, because she had the deep belief that all those issues I talked about, again, canceling student loan debt, child care, wealth tax, you know, all those are things that were deeply, deeply, deeply popular with the people of this country. Right. And with families in this country. And you're right. You know, it wasn't necessarily where the party was at, but she believed that if we got out there, roused the troops, showed energy, put wind behind our own sails, like she always says, that a presidential primary was the best way for us to sort of, you know, move the party in that in the right direction on these issues. Um, and, the, you know, spending her time talking to people, taking the, you know, taking the case directly to where people are, you know, through the town halls where, she would spend hours, you know, taking pictures and talking to people and having interactions, you know, doing her pinky promises with little girls and little boys, you know, along the way and telling them, you know, that she's running for president because that's what little girls do. Um, 
that 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 was central to the whole thing. And it was this idea that, you know, win or lose, we want to have started conversation in this country and, you know, leave the party to where the country and where the people actually are on these issues. And we're seeing it now, right? Poll after poll after poll, you know, wealth tax, popular, childcare, popular, you know, canceling student loan debt, popular, climate change, you know, addressing our climate health, popular. These are things that, that I think that the, the campaign and, and other candidates talked about it too. But I think the way that she tied it back to families and also tied it back to all of our families, you know, this notion of multicultural populism um, that exists in this country and especially in our party was so, so critically important. And uh, I, I would like to think that um, at least some of the reason why we're seeing some of this change happening with our party and our country uh, positive change is because of the campaign moving ray. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, as I said, I think the mark that that campaign left is going to be a significant one historically. It's um, it's really exciting to watch. I mean, I, I, I personally had my moment when President Biden, I know we're still in court about all of this, but, you know, ordered the cancellation of $15,000 in student loan debt, where I was like, that never would have happened were it not for the Warren campaign. Like, to me, it's, it's, uh, I, w- I wish it was all of it. <laughs> I'll be really candid, you know, still carrying those law school student loans. But I feel like it it put it into the national dialogue in a way that um that that changed that changed the discussion. So um so really grateful for that. Okay, so fast forward, you go to the DNC. You are now the deputy executive director of the DNC. Um, you know, right in time to start ramping up for the most recent midterm elections. And um that in and of itself must be a, an adjustment for you after so many years of being kind of like out there in the daily grind of campaigns. But I'm really curious, you know, the, it, I was really suspicious of the polls heading into November. I just had a feeling, you know, from the people that I was talking to, the work that I had done on, you know, the Pennsylvania Senate race and the canvassing I was doing out here for Katie Porter's reelection that... Uh, the polling didn't feel like it was lining up to what I was hearing on the ground from fellow organizers and activists and the like. Um, That's right. And I, That's yeah, right. and I'm, I, and you know, I'm curious. I mean, we ended up with a much better result than what was predicted, even like you know, 24, 48 hours in advance of the midterms. So, tell me what you attribute that to. I mean, I think part of it is probably polling and the reliability of polling and the samples of polling and all of that. But I also think some of it has to do with the fact that you know, we saw a lot of Gen Z mobilization and the like. So how did it look from inside the DNC to you? What are your takeaways from why we ended up where we did? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, polling's broken, right? And this is something that um, we have come to rely on as truth. Uh, and even at its best, you know, polling is a snapshot in time, as you know. And, you know, things, you know, sort of shift, you know, climate is fluid. Uh, but especially, if, you know, if you're polling the wrong people or you're not able to reach the people you need to reach. And as you alluded to, Gen Z and young people and people of color uh, were not sampled there. You know, I think it makes a huge difference. And, you know, I think uh, in the end, fundamentally changed the map and the math and how we look at it and outcome at the end. You know, that said, yeah, you're right. I, I, what I try to do as much as possible is, you know, get out in the doors myself. You know, I, I want to go to Pennsylvania because it's closer to D.C. where I am. Uh, obviously, we're excited about uh, Josh Shapiro's campaign yeah. and Fetterman's campaign yep. and the incredible organization he built out there. So, Thank you to your family for helping oh, uh, you know, uh, contribute to that. Um, but part of the reason why I love knocking on doors is like, you know, you do get that pulse. You do get that sense. You do, do get that temperature check of where people are. You know, uh, are they mad about uh, Republicans? Are they excited about Democrats or vice versa? You know, are they willing to split ticket? Um, but, you know, from an operative standpoint, a big part of the reason why I like knocking on doors is you get a real quick read on on 
the, the state of an organization or state of an operation. Are the lists good when you're knocking on doors? You know, are you talking to the people that you, know, you think you're talking to? You know, does the technology work or does it, you know, go in the fritz and you have to you know, go back to paper? Um, are volunteers on the ground excited uh, and well-trained? Uh, am I well-trained? Do I know what I'm doing when I'm hitting the doors? So all those things made me feel so good, at least about Pennsylvania coming into election day. And again, it was contrary to what we were seeing in, in media and the polling. So, you know, there's nothing that, 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 that beats it, you know, being there firsthand, you know, door to door, you know, face to face, you know, talking to the voters and answering their questions, uh, you know, as they, they come and, you know, getting a, a sense of, you know, what they care about. But none of that would have been possible, uh, in my opinion, you know, without the first step, which is a big part of why I decided I want to go to the DNC, without the early investments that were made, you know, not just by the DNC, but the state parties, but the campaigns, you know, thinking about how we build infrastructure, you know, to, to get to that point. You know, as you said, you know, at the beginning of the cycle in 2021, when I first joined the DNC, you know, lots of people were saying, you know, Roger, why would you go work with the DNC? You know, I'll leave that there. Um, but also, it's going to be a tough year. I mean, everyone, everyone knows that the year of uh, the cycle after a president in your own party gets elected is going to be a tough year for that party, right? Um, I, I had no delusions about that. But what I knew was that, you know, just like every election that, that I've been around for since, you know, when I first started, I'm sure when you first started and what feels like every election moving forward, this felt like a really critical opportunity uh, to make sure that we protect our democracy, build back on, on what was rolled back during the Trump years and build for a better future. And, you know, that's why I was there. And when I when I first started having conversations with people um, about working at the DNC, you know, someone really, really smart, uh, I, I, someone I think is, that I admire a lot, has been working in state parties for a long time, said to me, he said, you know what, Roger? Working for the party, working for the DNC, and working for the state party, can count as party, it's so different than working for a campaign or a candidate. And, you know, it's just like, understanding the importance will, you know, make a huge difference as to whether you succeed or fail. I said, okay, well, tell me more about that. And she said to me, she said, when, you, when you're running for office, when you're working on a campaign, when you're volunteering for a campaign, it's like driving a car on a highway, right? And you can get to the point where you drive well, you can drive fast, you might even get to the point where you can drive fancy cars and learn how to maintain cars. But when you're working at the DNC, she said, you're not driving a car on the highway anymore. You're running the highway. You're responsible for the highway. You're responsible for making sure that infrastructure is strong, that resources are available, and traffic flows. And she said to me, she said, Roger, I know you care deeply about this. And if you do this right and we do this right, we can make it so that anybody who wants to be part of this highway, that's the Democratic Highway, can be part of it, whether they're a candidate, a staffer, a volunteer, a donor, uh, a raiser. And that's why we are doing what we're doing. And that's sort of the lens that I, I, I was thinking about this. Like, how do we make it so that anybody can be a part of it, especially the people who we believe are part of that critical Democratic coalition, that Biden coalition, right? Yeah. It shouldn't just be that only the wealthiest and most well-connected candidates can have good data, good technology, good advice, good staff, the ability to raise money, right? We need to make it so that everyone has access to this basic infrastructure to run campaigns. You know, the idea that you know, the DNC should be providing all the basic things so that candidates and campaigns can focus on what they need to do, which is talking to voters, yeah. right? But it, you know, to the point about making sure that you know, the people we need to be on this highway are there, you know, we need to make sure they can build on-ramps, 
yeah, so that, you know, uh, people of color, you know, young people who want to be part of this can, you know, get be part of the process. And then off-ramps as well to make sure that we're actually going to where we need to be going, meeting people where they are. So we started BNC coordinating earlier than ever, you know, working with the BFCC, the Senatorial Committee, the DCCC, the Congressional Committee, our state party, candidates who are uh, on the ballot, you know, in 2022. Talking about organ- uh, coordinating early, making investments, hiring staff on the ground, even in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, where we didn't have Democratic nominees yet, to start organizing and start building capacity, start training volunteers. And the idea was that at some point, you know, we would have nominees at some point, even if it was a cycle where people thought it was going to be challenging. Our best chance to have success in November 22 was making sure that when the time came and people decided they wanted to be involved, that it was easy for them to volunteer, right? They're already trained, that they had ways to contribute and donate. Um, and, you know, I, I think that infrastructure piece itself didn't lead us to victory, but it set the conditions for us to be able to be there. To think about it in terms of a metaphor, you know, like a ship, like we built that ship, we built that sail, we put wind behind our own sails for a very long time. But when the opportunity came, when, when the momentum finally shifted our way, we were able to cruise and we were able to, you know, sail into victory in November. And that momentum came in the form of, you know, the Dobbs decision. You yeah. know, I think that Republicans overstepped. Uh, it's probably exactly what they wanted, and I'm sure they don't regret it. But it, boy, it galvanized an entire you know, group of people. Not only did the solid Democrats and people who weren't sure that government mattered and didn't think it made a difference and saw firsthand that it did. You know, it's people who you know decided they, young people especially, who said enough is enough. Let me see a Republican activist Supreme Court, you know, loosen up uh, restrictions to make sure that you know people you know who wanted to carry guns in dense areas and expanded the definition of, you know, where people can still carry, decided that they, you know, they, they wanted to see change. So all those things that on top of that, you know, our former president, President Trump, and I love saying former president, <laughs> uh, President Trump rearing his head when deciding to want to be part of the conversation. I think all those things galvanized people, you know, to want to be a part of this. I mean, because the DNC had the structure it did, because the state party put the structure they did, because all these candidates, candidates and organizations decided to coordinate early to give ourselves the best chance we were able to capture that momentum. And then the last thing I, w- I would say is, you know, it's not enough to know what it is that your opponents uh, are for. It's not just enough to know what you're against. It has, it's important to know what you're for as well. And I think that President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, the, the, the Senate and congressional Democrats and governors uh, all around the country, they did such an incredible job of t- taking the promise that we had, you know, promises that were made in 2020 about, Again, student debt relief, you know, about, you know, reinvesting in, uh, in infrastructure in a way we have in, in over a couple of generations, you know, making historic change and investment into protecting our planet, but also doubling down on, on our healthcare infrastructure to make sure that, you know, people can lead healthy lives. I mean, all those things were things that we were for, things that we protected, things that we strengthened. And, you know, I think that all those things in totality put us in the best possible position to, at the end of the day, you know, win re-election and be able to do more on what we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I feel like it's, it, it sets the stage really well for 2024 because that ship exists. And, you know, one of the great things that I've seen here just in the context of Katie Porter running is that the ship, the ship is, it lives, right? You know, like I'm now in the local, you know, yeah. the local chat groups here with the head of the volunteer corps and, you know, the people who were senior in the campaign staff. And it's like the infrastructure exists and you can take it 
in another direction, right? Or you can, you know, reuse it and those same people stay invested and they get invested in other campaigns and other issues. And so, um, you know, it, it, it feels people, people I think have not quite taken me so seriously lately when I've said, I feel optimistic, but at the moment I actually really do. I think that like, I do too. Good. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Actually, I feel like not even notwithstanding what's happened in the house in the last couple of weeks, that uh, you know we have we have reason to feel good about um, you know the ongoing work to save democracy and where we are headed into 2024. So um, I'm excited, and I'm excited to hear it from the DNC. The, the number one question I get when I'm on the campaign trail you know and it's, it's by the way elizabeth it's weird in front of the house and talking to people as opposed to behind the curtains and you know crouching somewhere being out of the shot but the number one question i get from people is at least leading up to the november election was how do we convince people we can win and you know the way i often think about it it's like i don't need people to believe that we can win right what i really really care about is getting people to believe that what they're what we're fighting for what they're fighting for is worth fighting for because if we do believe that it's worth fighting for, if reproductive rights are important, if housing as a right is, 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 is something we're willing to fight for, if investing in our future is, is, is uh, important, that they need to fight for, voting rights, civil rights, etc., then we put ourselves in a position where we have a collective sense of purpose and we, we can win this thing. And, you know, I think we did that, right? Like, I think that people came in and said, these things are worth fighting for. I don't know if we're going to win this thing, but, you know, we have to stand. And we did that. And, you know, we, we'll continue doing that. And as far as the infrastructure that, and, you know, building on what we did in 2022, you know, um, a lot of the states that you look at, you know, that were prioritized by the DNC this past year, almost $100 million that we invested in, in a lot of these states, you know, where we had Senate races, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona. These are all places that had. Senate or gubernatorial races that were, you know, competitive races that are important, overlaid with congressional races as well. But also, these are all states that are going to wind up being major, major players in 2024 from the Electoral College standpoint. So that investment we've made, not only in staff, not only in data, not only in technology, but also the relationships that we've built with the voters on the ground and the volunteers, that's going to pay dividends, you know, starting this year, but, you know, even next year. Yep, I completely agree. Yeah, it's 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 really good stuff. Okay, I have to ask you the three questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, the first one is yes. <laughs> the first one is what keeps you going? Oh, I, so much keeps me keeps me going, but I'm going to bring it back full circle. And you know, my family, their experiences, my personal experiences, they stay in my head. And as you could probably imagine. I still, to this day, have deep regrets about how I spend my youth, uh, the mistakes I made. Uh, I still very often, you know, wake up and, you know, feel the sense of imposter syndrome where, you know, I can't believe that I get to do what I get to do, not only because it's special, but because I dug myself into such a deep hole that I very often still feel like I don't belong here. And, you know, every single day I wake up, to me, it feels like, you know, borrowed time where... I have an opportunity to make a difference. I have an opportunity to make change. And there's still part of me that feels like at some point someone's going to take this all away and figure out that I don't belong here. So it's that sense of urgency, of purpose. But the biggest thing for me every single day is like, let me keep this door open as long as I can. Let me just put my shoulder into it, hold it open so the next kid who's just like me, who has a story like mine, who wants to be part of this can. 
Um, but it's the young people, it's the families, it's, it's, you know, uh, the opportunity, you know, to take a moment in time to, to make your mark and, and make the community better and that, that keeps you going. I mean, I, I'll also just say, I just feel like one of the things that's so beautiful and compelling about your story is that it's, it's also a story of how, how we save ourselves and how, how we, we are worthy of second chances, even when we think we're not right. And one of the things that I find so compelling about the party itself is the way in which, um, it works to provide for everyone, right? Like even folks who maybe think they aren't worthy, even folks that, you know, other political people, or operations might say or not. And, um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm proud to be a Democrat, right? Because, because there is room for everyone and there is, there is, there is, there are second chances and, um, and it's a beautiful thing. So, uh, you belong. (laughs) I don't have any doubt about that. Thank you. Thank you. uh, Second question. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now? Um, there's so many concerns that I think about every single day, but probably top of mind for me is just the fundamental state of our democracy. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the, the structural side of things, right? You yeah. know, where the notion, you know, that uh, we're changing the rules or trying to change the rules without accepting the fact where the line denying that election results have happened, we're undermining, you know, figures of authority, you know, people who are have put in charge of, you know, making sure that our elections and our rights uh, as citizens, as participants in our democracy, are being stripped away piece by piece. Um, that's a big part of it, right? Uh, and that's something we need to fight back against. And you know, obviously, the best way we do that is you know making sure that we talk about it, understanding what the rules are, and when these elections will be canned, to make sure we have good people who understand, you know, how to you know not only maintain but strengthen our democracy or holding these offices um, and calling it out when people are breaking those, you know, breaking the rules and bending the rules or just complete disregarding the rules. But then the, the second part of that is this cultural, you know, degradation of like trust and faith in the system as a whole, right? Where, you know, we have a, a great set of norms, a great set of rules on how we, you know, run the democracy. And when things don't work out for, for some people, you know, when I say some people, meaning Republicans on the other side, or at least some of them, they decide it's just not real. And, you know, they continue, you know, fighting back and pushing and not believing, you know, leading to things like insurrection, you know, that happened, you know, just a little bit over a year ago. Uh, it is frightening. It is scary. And uh, I, I, I think that we need to do all things we can structurally to strengthen these institutions. But there needs to be an education. And we need to be able to call out every chance we can just how abnormal and how, how like, how bad it is for uh, our, our democracy in our country. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's one of the things where, you know, we need people who are willing to kind of commit to telling the truth, you know, and, and, and apart from anything else to, um, to standing for something, because, you know, I have to say that even, even at this moment, you know, sort of watching story after story, after story, after story come out about George Santos, for instance, I, I can't imagine oh, that boy. there isn't a point where even the people, I mean, we saw this right with the Republican party in Nassau County saying, Oh, we're done, right? Where there's a moment where even in the Republican yeah. base, it becomes too much. You know, the 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 challenge to reality becomes so serious and dire that the line has been crossed. Um, my hope is that you know the pendulum is swinging back, but I guess we'll see. Okay, that brings me to my final question. 
And this has been so yeah, much. Well, the, the only thing I'll say about that, though, is, uh, sorry, that's, I can't help it, but, you know, his, his district is right next, you know, right near the one where I grew up yeah. in, which uh, up until recently was the AOC's yep. district. Um, his story is actually not that different than mine. You know, I, I believe he was a high school dropout, took his GED, his parents worked hard, they're, they're new Americans, you know, they tried to do their best to make it in this country. And the notion that his story was not good enough, that his story was not authentic and not real enough, not good enough to run for office, is wild to me that, you know, this guy went out there and just, mm. it was Walter Mitty, just like created a whole new reality for himself. That is just crazy. And then it probably speaks to, you know, how it is, you know, it's just crazy that, that, that that's what they look for, right? right? Had, had, had he walked in and told his story, who knows if he would have even been taken seriously as a candidate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and because the, the reality is the story of, of, you know, your story is good enough. That origin story of his is good enough. And it should be. That's the whole point of our democracy, right? But the idea that it's not good enough for the Republican Party, let alone that for whatever reason he had to go fabricate an entire history. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I don't even I don't even know where to start. I, I mean, he even had himself. I, I think I read something. He made himself captain of a championship yes. volleyball team. Called. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is so chaotic of all the things to choose. But in, in and of itself, it's um it, it's so emblematic of where the GOP is right now. Um, all right. Final question. That's right. Um, how can our audience best work to shore up democracy, right? I mean, one of the, our audience is made up of organizers and activists and everyday people who are really out there, you know, fighting for change and fighting to bend the arc. Um, given that all of us are worried about the state of our democracy and the norms that we ascribe to and the security of democratic principles, uh, how can, how can we all best work to change that? I think we, the, the best things we can do is educate ourselves to understand what's at stake, what's going on in this country. Um, call out, you know, lies when we see it, you know, we have to be our own truth squad in the country, unfortunately, because we're not even agreed on a set of facts or rules and, and norms of this country and our democracy. Um, engaging, I think it's critically important. I think apathy is, you know, the single biggest threat to our democracy and our country. If we know if people care, the math is in our favor, we will win elections. So making sure that people engage. Um, and then, you know, making sure that, you know, we uh, get others involved and mobilize them, right? You know, making sure that having those difficult conversations with your family, you know, people who get are, are victims of misinformation, people who feel like their their voices don't count or their vote doesn't count, um, all those things I think matter. And then finally, organizing, you know, when they can, when you can, into your own communities. And to the extent that people can be uh, can do it, whether it be time or money, contributing, right? Yes. You know, the, uh, one thing I did learn from Elizabeth Warren's campaign, and we're seeing, you know, here at the DNC, you know, Sadly, our democracy, the way it's, uh, the campaign for finance laws are structured, you know, requires investment and requires, you know, resources, which include higher uh, money and contributions. And we can allow our democracy be, to be bought and wholly owned by, you know, a uh, class of, you know, donors who, you know, write massive, massive checks and, you know, have undue influence on our elected officials, our parties and our system. Or we can all just chip in a little bit. That a million people putting in a dollar into uh, a campaign or the party is going to, it's so much more powerful than one single person writing a billion dollar check. Yeah. Uh, and it's certainly more democratic. You know, having more people involved. So it's educate, it's engage, it's amplify, organize, and, you know, consider whatever you can, because this party of ours, the democratic party and this country is 
only what we make of it and what we make of it and, and what, we'll, you know, uh, what, what, what we can do is entirely dictated by our willingness to be a part of it. That's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Roger Lau, Deputy Executive Director of the DNC, for joining us today on Living Through It. This has been wonderful. I feel like we could talk for hours. Uh, and <laughs> thank you so much for being here. No, Elizabeth, thank you for all you do, too. I mean, I think um, clearly you have uh, a whole lifetime of you know passions and interests and experience. And the fact that you spend your time letting people tell their stories uh, I mean, I, I think the exciting conversations of, of like this to show people how to be engaged. Uh, it's so powerful. It's so important. And I think it makes a huge difference. So thank you for all you oh, do. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. We will be right back. Okay. Well, I guess you can see why I was so thrilled about this interview. I am amazed always by the ways in which this work this podcast <laughs> and the work that I do as an activist and an organizer always leads me back to common threads. And one of the things that this interview in particular led me back to is the ways in which we are all connected. We may come from different places. Our families may come from different places, but our stories run in tandem and in parallel and in lockstep. One of the things that's great about this moment in particular is the way in which so many of us are recognizing that no matter where we come from and no matter what our childhood may have looked like or the choices that we have made in life that led us to wherever it is that we have landed, we are all in this together, this great experiment of American democracy, the great prospect of becoming something that we have not ever been, and yet could be. And I hope you'll take the message of this podcast into your day and into your week and into the future. And remember that there are second chances and there is always hope. And the prospect of moving toward a second chance for America is one that should inspire all of us to keep doing the work. Thanks as always for being here. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.